Good morning. I'll be reading from Exodus 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came to Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. Reuben, Simeon, Levi, and Judah. Issachar, Zebulun, and Benjamin. Dan and Naphtali, Gad and Asher. All the descendants of Jacob were 70 persons. Joseph was already in Egypt. Then Joseph died and all his brothers and all that generation But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them. Let us multiply. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. So they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves, and made their lives bitter with hard service, in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, One of you, whom was named Shifra, and the other Pua, when you served as midwife to the Hebrew woman and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwife said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives, and the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that is born to the Hebrews you shall cast into the Nile, but you shall let every daughter live. Epic. Absolutely epic. And I'm just talking about attendance today. It's so good to see all of you here this morning. But the story of Exodus, that's a true epic. It's an epic in the tradition of so many of our epics, isn't it? Again, how many of our epics start like the story of Exodus does? You know, here we are in a galaxy oppressed by an evil empire. So a reluctant and unlikely hero, Luke Skywalker, rises to lead the rebel alliance on a cosmic confrontation between good and evil to defeat a dark lord and to free the galaxy. Or maybe Middle Earth is oppressed by a dark lord, so a reluctant and an unlikely hero named Frodo Baggins arises and with his friends engages in a cosmic confrontation between good and evil to defeat the dark lord Sauron and free Middle Earth. This story follows those epic arcs. The people of Israel are oppressed. They're enslaved by an evil pharaoh, and so a reluctant hero is going to arise. We'll meet Moses in a while. And that Moses is called to lead God's people in a cosmic confrontation between good and evil and to lead his people out of slavery to freedom. It's epic. This is an epic story. And I love the way that the ESV Study Bible describes the book of Exodus. Listen to this. Exodus is an adventure story par excellence. 
It features a cruel villain, Pharaoh, an unlikely hero, Moses, overwhelming disasters, the plagues, a spectacular deliverance, the crossing the Red Sea, a long journey through the wilderness, a mountaintop experience where, mountain, where Moses receives the Ten Commandments, a grand finale, the presence of God coming down to the Ark of the Covenant and filling the tabernacle with glory. The story features unexpected setbacks and unpredictable delays, magic tricks from Pharaoh's sorcerers, and miracles, feasts and festivals, music and dancing, and many close encounters with the living God. Seriously, it sounds better than most of today's blockbusters. Like, I want to see that. And we are. We're going to see that. We're going to see it all because this is an epic story of God's move. And friends, this story isn't just a blockbuster for our entertainment. This story is an identity story. This story is meant to define a people's identity. This story told the Israelites who they were. You know, origin stories have become really hot in the last few years. You know, especially Marvel movies is superhero origin stories. You know, how did, how did this superhero get his start? How did she get her powers? What was the journey that gave him his identity? What was the experience that finally defined her and made her a hero? Identity stories, origin stories are really popular. And Exodus is Israel's origin story. This is the defining moment in the life of Israel. Now, the birth of the nation has to be traced back all the way to Genesis 12, and we'll talk a little bit about that. But the Exodus story that we're going to study together was the defining event in Israel's identity. Do you want to know who you are? Here's your story. Do you want to understand yourself? Here's the story. Do you want to understand who God is? Here's the story. Do you want to understand how now you're supposed to live? Here's the story. This was the event that made Israel, that made God's people who she was. An epic, no mere entertainment story, an identity story. And so for us, as we read through the Bible, we find that the book of Exodus functions in the Old Testament the way the Gospels function in the New Testament. In the New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John tell us the story of God's deliverance of His people from slavery and death through His Son, Jesus Christ. And friends, everything else, everything else in the New Testament flows from this story. Uh, Everything flows from, hinges on, or refers back to and explains that story. And Exodus is the same way in the Old Testament. You see, the whole of the Old Testament looks back to the Exodus event. It flows from the Exodus event. It hinges on the Exodus event. It explains the Exodus event. It talks about the consequences of the Exodus event. So what the Gospels are to the New Testament, Exodus is to the Old Testament. And even more than that, the Exodus event in the Old Testament becomes a picture, a shadow, an archetype of God's deliverance that eventually we will again see in Christ's deliverance of His people in the New Testament. So the book of Exodus and the deliverance of Exodus are the key. Friends, these are the key to understanding not only the whole of the Old Testament, 
but to fully understanding Jesus and his deliverance in the New Testament. And as such, I am excited for us to say together this epic, this epic story, friends, that defines the people of God. And ask, how might this story also define us? How might God speak to us through the story of the Exodus? And so let's look at it today. The first thing I want us to note as we study the book is the word and. The word and. Now, you, you don't see it in your English translation, but in the Hebrew, Exodus begins with the word and, which sounds like really bad grammar. But the point is, what you're reading in Exodus, you can't understand it unless you understand what came before it. All of this happened and now something else is happening. In fact, the first six verses of Exodus introduce us to a colorful cast of characters and then in verse six immediately kills them all off. Kind of like watching Star Wars Rogue One. And for the few geeks out there that understood that, you're welcome. For the rest of you, we'll just move on. So again, we find this colorful cast of characters introduced in the first six verses of Exodus. Then it says, Joseph died, all of his brothers, and all that generation. But the Exodus began with an and, because we have to understand a little bit about this colorful cast of characters and how they ended up being in Egypt so that we can understand what's about to happen in the Exodus and why they want to get out of Egypt. Now, as I said earlier, in many ways, the Exodus is an origin story, but the birth story of God's people Israel happened back in Genesis, and specifically in Genesis 12. You see, in Genesis chapter 12, we meet a man named Abram. A man named Abram in Genesis 12, starting in verse 1, says, The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country, your kindred, your father's house to the land I'll show you. I'll make you a great nation and I'll bless you and I'll make your name great so that you'll be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now, now this man, Abram, he was called from the city of Ur of the Chaldeans, which is located in modern day Iraq. And, and the Lord says to him, if you follow me, he promises him three things. Three things if you follow me. He promises that you'll be given a land. You'll be given a land. It's the land of Canaan, which comes to be referred to throughout the Old Testament as the promised land. I promise to give you a land, and this is the land. It's the land of Canaan. Secondly, the Lord promises Abram. He says, I'm going to make you into a great nation. And later on, he promises your descendants will be more numerous than the sand on the seashore more numerous than the stars in the sky. You're going to be a great nation, Abram. And finally, he says, in you, all the families on earth will be blessed. Through you, through your descendants, through your people, all of the nations on earth are going to be blessed. So he promises Abram three things. He says, land, descendants, and blessing. Land, descendants, and blessing. The problem is, these things don't come without struggle. You notice he didn't say you're going to get land, descendants, and blessing, and no problems. No, there's going to be plenty of problems along the way to fulfilling these promises. And in fact, just a few chapters later in Genesis 15, the Lord foretells what's going to happen to the descendants of Abraham. 
In Genesis 15, verses 3 through 4, the Lord says, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. So the events that we're about to read in the book of Exodus were foretold to Abram not too long after Abram's call. So Abram and his descendants would receive the promises of land, descendants, and blessing. But what would come with that? Struggle and even bitter affliction in the land that was not theirs. Now, if we were to take the time and if we were to read all the way through the book of Genesis, which I recommend you do if you never have, It will give you the background for this story. If we were to read through it, we'd discover that the Lord changes Abram's name to Abraham. And then he miraculously gives to Abraham a son named Isaac. And Isaac has a son named Jacob, to whom God then gives the name Israel. And so Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, come to be known as the three patriarchs, the the father's of the Jewish people. And we find their names repeatedly referenced together throughout the rest of the Old Testament and the New. So so listen for it. As you look and read through the Old Testament and the New Testament, listen, you'll hear these three names together. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, or Abraham, Isaac, and Israel. And as we come to the final third of the book of Genesis, you know, we find that Israel, Jacob, had 12 sons of his own. And the names of them were read by Connie, who did a great job reading them. Thank you, Connie. Because these are the names that are listed for us at the beginning of Exodus. These are the ones who came into Egypt. It was the sons of Jacob, the sons of Israel, who came into Egypt. You see, if we were to read the whole story of Jacob and his sons, we'd find that Jacob had 12 sons. The problem was there was a little bit of family disunity. Because we learn an important an important story here and principle here, parents. Don't play favorites. Jacob played favorites. He had a favorite, and that was Joseph. And he treated Joseph with favoritism to the point that his brothers were jealous of him. So one day his brothers were out tending the sheep, and they, they took Joseph and threw him into a pit. And then they saw some, some slave traders passing, and they sold Joseph into slavery, and they brought back a bloody coat of Joseph to their father and said, Look, A wild animal must have killed Joseph. Well, the Lord providentially used Joseph, and through a series of of ups and downs, Joseph ended up in a position of power and authority in Egypt. Second to none but the Pharaoh of the time. And the Lord used Joseph to save not only Egypt, but the entire known world from a seven-year-long famine. Seriously, this is a great story. If you haven't read this, grab the book of Genesis. Not now. Not during the sermon, but after the sermon. This is a great story. And so the Lord used Joseph to save not just Egypt, but the entire known world from a seven-year-long famine. And during this time, well, inevitably what happened, Joseph's brothers were also suffering the famine. So they were sent to Egypt to buy food. Eventually, Joseph revealed himself to them. And then Joseph received the blessing of the Pharaoh at that time to move his father and his brothers and all of their families into Egypt until the famine was passed. And so it is that Exodus opens 
with the Hebrew word and. You have to understand what happened before. And then this happened. And verse 1. These are the names of the sons of Israel who came into Egypt with Jacob, each with his household. So the sons of Jacob, or the sons of Israel, came into Israel under really good terms. They came with the protection of Joseph. And a Pharaoh who loved Joseph, and a land who loved Joseph, because Joseph saved all of them, came in. This was really good terms that they came into Egypt. However, Joseph knew it wouldn't last. And I think they all might have sensed it wasn't going to last. Because we actually find at the very end of Genesis, in the last chapter of Genesis, Genesis 50, there's Joseph. He's on his deathbed. And on his deathbed, Joseph says to his brothers in Genesis 50, verse 24, I'm about to die, but God will visit you and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. There are the three names, the patriarchs. God promised the patriarchs the land. He promised them Canaan. He promised them this land. And He's going to deliver you from Egypt and bring you to the land. He's going to fulfill His promises. It may not seem like it at times, but God is faithful. Friends, God always fulfills His promises. And you may be in one of those times where you're saying, hey, listen, I feel like I'm in Egypt. I feel like God's made promises. Promises to provide and to protect promises to lead and to deliver. I don't always feel that. But friends, God is faithful to His promises. And so Joseph, knowing that God is faithful, he says, God will eventually bring you up. We may be in Egypt for now, but it won't be forever. God will yet fulfill the promise. And so the book of Exodus begins. It begins with the previous generation dying. Joseph, the other sins of Israel, they die. And so does the Pharaoh. The, the Pharaoh that was generous towards Joseph and that appreciated his service, he dies. And what do we learn about the subsequent generations of Israel as they're there in Egypt? Look at verse 7. The people of Israel, well, they were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong. So the land was filled with them. Friends, do you hear this? God is fulfilling His promise. God promised them three things. He said land, descendants, and blessings. And here's the descendants. They're filling up the land. God is blessing them. He's fulfilling His promise to them. The problem was that scared Egypt. And verse 8 tells us, Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. So the goodwill that was towards Joseph and his family, Jacob and his sons, was all gone. And now all that Pharaoh can see is a threat to Egypt's security. And so the Lord's blessing on His people actually becomes the source of their problem. They've become so numerous that now they're seen as a threat. And that sets up the central conflict of the book of Exodus. Friends, here it is, the central conflict. Well, up to this point, with Israel, uh, you know, he, they may have worked with and even for the Egyptians in an effort to control them and to limit their numbers, what do the Egyptians do? It says they now enslave and oppress them, making their service bitter. Look at verse 14. The Egyptians made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick, all kinds of work in the field, and in their work they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. 
Now, at one time, the, the Israelites might have worked for and with the Egyptians, and they might have even been willing, and, and the work might have been tolerable, even good. But what happens now, it's become bitter. What was originally a good situation and maybe even a good work relationship has become bitter. And the purpose of the opposition is to break the Israelites, to slow their growth. But friends, do you see what happens? This is great. No human opposition can stop the blessing of God. No human opposition can stop God's blessing. Look at verse 12. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied. And the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. The more they're pushed down, the more they multiply. Because, friends, you cannot stop God. And God continues to bless His people. No matter how the oppression comes from outside, God continues to bless and to grow His people. And Pharaoh's first attempt here, what happens to thwart the Lord's blessing? Well, it fails. But that's only attempt one. He's got more up his sleeve. There's more where that came from, he says. So, so the conflict escalates, and now what does he do? He tries to enlist the Israelite midwives to kill every male child born to the Israelites. It's state-sanctioned abortion of the male children. But the midwives refuse. And in verse 17, it says, But the midwives feared God. They didn't do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. Fear God more than you fear any other power. Fear God more than you fear any other king. Fear God more than you fear any other ruler. The people of God, people of God, our highest allegiance is to the Lord. Now, Scripture does give us some really strong commandments to be subject to earthly authorities. Such as in Romans 13, verses 1 and 2. Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God. And those that exist have been instituted by God. Therefore, whoever resists the authorities resists what God has appointed, and those who resist will incur judgment. Wow. Then how do we make sense of this account? Because what we clearly see in this account is that the midwives are not subject to the governing authority. They're not subject to the Pharaoh. They cannot and will not submit to any law that commands them to violate the Lord's command. The midwives defied Pharaoh's order, and the passage tells us that the Lord did not punish them for their disobedience. In fact, it says he rewarded them with families. Friends, we must always strive to fear the Lord. The Lord must be our highest and our greatest fear, our highest and our greatest allegiance. We find this truth borne out in the rest of Scripture. In Joshua chapter 2, Rahab lied to and committed treason against her government by hiding Israelite spies, but yet was celebrated in the New Testament as an example of faith. In Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego divide the king, refusing to, obey, refusing to disobey the Lord by bowing to his idol. And so they were thrown into the fiery furnace. 
Daniel, in Daniel chapter 6, prayed to the Lord willingly and openingly, rebelling against the king's command not to pray to anyone but him. Matthew chapter 2, the Magi defied Herod's command to report to him directly the whereabouts of the Christ child because it says they knew that Herod wanted to kill the baby. And in Acts chapter 4 and 5, the Apostle Peter defied the government of the time, boldly declaring, Judge for yourselves whether it's right in God's sight to obey you rather than God. And we must obey God rather than men. Friends, in all these cases, we need to remember that our highest fear, our highest allegiance is to God. Our highest allegiance is to God. Now, some have looked at the midwives' response and they've asked, hold on, did did these midwives lie? Is this teaching us that lying is permissible in some circumstances? You know, it is interesting to note that the Scripture reports the midwives' words without any any comment or commentary. It doesn't say, well, what they said was true or what they said was lying. It just reports this is what they said without any commendation or condemnation. But their report with Pharaoh does seem like it might be playing fast and loose with the truth there. So, the ninth commandment clearly says you shouldn't bear false witness. Proverbs 6 lists a lying tongue and a false witness as two of the seven abominations before the Lord. So, is there ever a circumstance where lying is permissible? Is there ever a circumstance where lying is permissible? And friends, Husbands know that if your wife comes to you and asks, do these pants make my hips look big? Lying is 100% permissible. So there are clearly circumstances where it is permissible. Oh yeah, I'm sorry about that. But this passage is similar to the case of Rahab that I mentioned in passing. You know, in Joshua chapter 2, verse 5, Rahab lies to protect the lives of the Israelite spies who unquestionably would have been killed if they were caught. And in this situation, it appears the Hebrew midwives might have lied to protect the infants who unquestionably would have been killed. Now, we should take note that despite the positive outcome of these lies, the Bible nowhere praises the lies themselves. The Bible nowhere celebrates dishonesty. You know, we should note that the Bible nowhere states that there are instances where lying is the right thing to do, However, at the same time, the Bible never declares there's no possible instance in which lying might be an acceptable option. You know, again, is there ever a time when lying is the right thing to do? You know, the most common illustration that's referred to is the life of Corrie Ten Boom, when she and her family in Nazi-occupied Holland were hiding Jews in their home to protect them from the Nazis. And when the Nazis came to their house to ask if she knew where any Jews were hiding, should she tell the truth? to the government, knowing that then they would drag away the Jews and kill them? Or should she lie and deny that she knows anything about them? Friends, it's complicated. But in an instance like this where lying may be the only possible way to prevent a horrible evil, perhaps lying would be an acceptable thing to do. But friends, such a situation is extremely rare. And the truth is the vast majority of people in human history have never and will never face a situation like this. 
where lying is the only option. So we need to be so very careful in trying to apply a passage like this to our lives today. What can we affirm? Friends, we can affirm that God is to be our highest fear and our highest allegiance. That we are to strive always to speak the truth and to speak truly. But friends, understand this is a commentary on our fear of God and the midwives' fear of God. They are praised for their fear of God. They are praised that they did not give in to fear of Pharaoh and fear for their own life, but stood in their fear of God and protected these infant Israelites. So any commands we find in Scripture to submit to government authorities can never mean a command for you and I to submit to injustice or to participate in evil. But there's a question here. Church, who do you fear? Who will be your ultimate authority? Who will be your highest? To whom will you submit ultimately? And note in verse 20, that just as with Pharaoh's first attempt at reducing the population of Israel, this second attempt, how's that go? That backfired on him too. Chapter 20, I mean verse 20, the people multiplied and grew very strong. So in fact, the best part of it is the very midwives who Pharaoh recruited to reduce the population of Israel. It says God gave them families, so they increased the population of Israel. Instead of being part of getting rid of them, they became part of multiplying them. Because no work of humanity can cancel the blessing of God. The more God's people are pushed down, the more God's people continue to multiply. And friends, there's another important thing I want you to note about these midwives. It's the fact that we know their names. Friends, notice something about this passage. Whose names? Who's given a name in this passage? In this passage, we are not given the name of the most powerful man in the passage. We're not given the name of the most powerful man in the world at that time. They don't even bother to name him because his name's withheld because it's inconsequential. But do you know who is consequential? These two Hebrew midwives, Shifra and Pua. They're worth naming. Friends, who are the consequential persons in this world today? Who are the people worth naming? Is it the rich and powerful, the politicians and the pundits, the businessmen and the bankers? Scripture here subtly says Pharaoh, oh, oh he's inconsequential. Not even going to bother to tell you his name. He's just a Pharaoh. But you know who is worth naming? Do you know who's going who's gonna to shake, shake up our history here? Shifra and Pua. We're going to make sure their names are remembered. Remember their names because these are the people that God is going to use to shape and to shape the world. The scheme of the most powerful man in the world at that time is foiled by these two women. Do you understand how shameful and how controversial this would have been in that time? Don't name the most powerful man in the room and have him then shown up by two women. But friends, that's how God works. In fact, you're going to notice a theme. It's an amazing theme as we read these first few chapters of Exodus. The sons of Israel are saved repeatedly by the daughters of Israel. Women feature prominently in these early chapters. They're the heroes. They defy kings. They save lives. 
I mean, anyone who says that the Bible is a book that doesn't honor women or present them as strong doesn't understand how incredible these verses would have appeared to the first hearers of the story. Without these women, without the daughters of Israel, the sons of Israel would have all died in the first chapters of Exodus. If it was not for these women, for the daughters of Israel, the sons of Israel would have died. The Lord used these women, considered insignificant and powerless by the culture of their day. He used them to foil the schemes of the most powerful man in their day. Friends, when we fear and obey God, do you realize how powerful and consequential your actions might be? Obedience to the Lord has the power to foil the plans of the most powerful of persons and frustrate the schemes of institutions and governments. John Wesley, who is the founder of the Methodist Church, said, Give me 100 preachers who fear nothing but sin and desire nothing but God, and I care not whether they be clergymen or laymen. They alone will shake the gates of hell and will set up the kingdom of heaven on earth. Friends, God will shake the very earth through those who fear Him. Those willing to be used by Him who fear nothing but Him and obey Him and follow Him. Friends, will you be that person? Will you offer yourself to be used by Him? And finally, frustrated by all the previous failures, we hear Pharaoh's third and final attempt to shrink and limit the Israelite population in verse 22. Then Pharaoh commanded all his people, Every son that's born to the Hebrews you shall cast in the Nile, and you shall let every daughter live. So do you see this? Pharaoh's getting more and more desperate. Pharaoh tries to recruit the average Egyptian to participate. He says, hey guys, it's your patriotic duty. It's your patriotic duty. If you come across a male Israelite infant, you should seize that infant and toss the child in the Nile. It's government-sponsored genocide. Three attempts. Three attempts by Pharaoh in this one chapter to shrink and control the Israelite population. He uses slavery, abortion, genocide. Things had started out so well for people, God's people when they came to Egypt. What's happened? It's all turned bitter. It's all turned bitter. And that's what this first chapter is. It's bitter. And so the stage is set for an epic confrontation between Pharaoh and the Lord. A cosmic confrontation between good and evil where an evil king is going to be defeated so that God's people Israel can be led in an exodus from their slavery and bitterness to freedom. And friends, this is so important to us because this is the same type of epic deliverance that we all need. This is the same type of epic deliverance that you and I need. You see, this world and all that is started out so good. Everything started out so good, created by God for blessing and flourishing. But just, but just as for the Israelites, things have become bitter for us, haven't they? Every one of us now lives with a sense that this world is not the way it should be. That I'm not the way I should be. We've fallen from what once was. Something's broken. We're broken. And we feel like something good has gone terribly wrong and become terribly bitter. And so every one of us longs for deliverance. We want a hero to come and deliver us from our bitter bondage, to fix whatever it is that's gone wrong. 
And we have a sense that on the other side of deliverance is some kind of a freedom. Some kind of things set right again, justice restored, things made good. Uh, and a hope that, that things on the other side might even be a little bit more beautiful. Because they were once broken, but now have been restored. See, Israel's need is our need. And the gospel is that Jesus Christ has come for us and has staged an epic confrontation with sin. At the cross and at the grave, Jesus staged the ultimate battle between good and evil and has led us in an exodus from slavery to freedom. He's come to deliver us from our bitter service to fear, sin, and death. The author of Hebrews summarizes in Hebrews 2, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Friends, the gospel is that the exodus has begun, that Christ is delivering for himself a people from lifelong bitter bondage to death, fear, and slavery. And he's bringing them to freedom, making them his children. And so it is we saying, I'm no longer a slave. I'm no longer a slave to fear. I'm a child of God. And friends, if you're here today or if you're logged in online and you don't know the freedom that Christ has come to give us, I invite you to come talk to me after the service. Contact me through the church website, chestnutstreetbaptist.org slash contact. Because I would love to talk to you. I would love to pray with you. And I would love for you to know the exodus that Jesus has come to lead. Leading you from bitterness. Leading you from bondage. Leading you from sin. Leading you from death into the glorious freedom of children of God. And church, we who have been delivered, let's be beware lest we never fall back into bondage. Because the problem is, as you're going to see in the life of Israel, even once you're delivered, you tend to look back and go, was Egypt really that bad? I remember some good times back then. I remember some good things. And we might be tempted to return. We might be tempted to return. Friends, it may look good now, but I promise, it always turns bitter. It always turns bitter. So live your freedom. And if you're struggling to live that freedom, tempted by your old ways and by your old life, we would love to pray with you, love to walk with you, so that you might find and live the freedom that Jesus Christ has come to offer us. Don't struggle alone. Because, friends, this battle is epic. But the gospel, the good news, is that Christ is victorious. And let's pray. Father, help us to live the victory. The victory that is in Jesus Christ. Help us to live no longer as slaves to fear and to sin and to death. But help us live the glorious freedom of sons and daughters of God. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen.